Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, good morning, everyone. I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 1. And as you're turning to Psalm chapter 1, if we have any children present, we would invite you to uh, go to uh, children's ministry in the back. The volunteers will meet you back there, and you can enjoy your time in God's Word there. But for us, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 1. This morning, we're beginning a series called Summer in the Psalms. And as that title implies, we're going to spend the rest of our summer looking at various different psalms. We're obviously not going to cover every psalm in that time, but it's still important for us, as we do at the beginning of any study of a book in God's Word, to get a good framework and understanding that book as a whole. I'm sure if I asked each of you what the book of Psalms is or what its purpose is, I'd get a lot of different answers for that. So before we dive in and read this psalm, we're going to watch a video. It's going to set up for us the purpose of the collection of the psalms, and hopefully it will guide us and equip us to read the psalms with a deeper understanding. We've been talking about poetry in the Bible, how biblical poets love design and masterfully use metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience, to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles. And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here. Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle, and then later the temple in Jerusalem, were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals, you'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain and you're in his living room. So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom. Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile. Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there's been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah, God placed humanity in a garden temple. 
And here, humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms, and so are exiled from the garden. But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope, about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah, or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they're planted in the river of God's life. Yeah, that's beautiful, but who's it supposed to be? Well, remember that story in Genesis? After humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise. Oh right, a future human, the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion, praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are connected to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel. Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. And he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before the temple was even built. Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. And so David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's like a prayer coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in good times and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets, and they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the Book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people. This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put down. No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. They're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God. With that framework in mind, let's uh, read Psalm 1 and enter into this literary temple that we might worship and engage the living God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. So may we go to him now as we always do and ask for his help in understanding his word. O oh God, as we 
have already done this morning, we thank you and praise you for the treasure that is your word. It is your gift to us to reveal who you are, reveal who we are in light of your creation of us, our brokenness and sin against you, of our need of redemption and a savior. And we thank you specifically this morning for what lies before us in Psalm 1. We don't know who the writer of this psalm was, but we know the truth that your spirit inspired this individual to put this into a sacred text, that here today we might learn from it. We might grow in our knowledge of you and our desire for you. So we pray, Father, and we ask for your help. Give me words of truth that come from you. Give your people gathered here this morning open eyes to see, open ears to hear, that we might be transformed by the beauty of your word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. We love you. Amen. So the book of Psalms, as we saw, is this collection of songs and poetry that was written to and for and from the people of ancient Israel. And as the video highlighted, the collection of these psalms took shape over the course of the kingdom period, with David being its most featured psalmist. But the traumatic experience of the Babylonian exile and the return from that exile further shaped this collection, taking its final shape at some point during the second temple period following that exile. And I bring all of that up because whichever person or group of people arranged and ordered the collection we have for us today, they did it with intentionality. Of all the Psalms that could be the first in this collection, the one before us this morning is the one, is the one that was selected. And how does this Psalm begin? Well, it begins where the whole story of the Bible begins, blessing. You see, that's the very first word, blessed. And it's a common word for us in English. If someone asks how you're doing, you, could, you might respond with, I've been blessed or I am blessed. And that's usually a way of, for us to convey that things are going well for us. We often pray before a meal. We ask a blessing over the meal. And we still use that very old phrase, bless you, as a polite response when someone sneezes. And the Bible does use this word blessed to convey a deep sense of happiness, but it's way more profound. In Genesis 1, we find that God's first command to humans who were made in his image was a blessing. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. And God blessed them, that is, the man and the woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant 
for food. And it was so. Blessing in the biblical story is God's generosity, his abundance, his life that's poured out on humans that they might carry out his good love, his good character, his good intent for the world and for one another. So whatever we're going to encounter this morning in Psalm 1, it's a poetic way of telling us what it really looks like to be blessed, to have the abundant blessing of God working in us and through us. And as we're going to see, pursuit of God's Eden blessing is wrapped up completely in association. Who or what do we choose to shape us? What kind of people are we? So with that in mind, here's the outline for us as we work through this psalm this morning. Point number one, we're going to look at the rejection of blessing, and we'll find that in verse one. Point number two, we'll look at the planting of blessing, and we'll see that in verses two through four. And then finally, point three, the distinction of blessing, which we'll read in verses five and six. So let's start with point number one, the rejection of blessing. Look again there at that verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist begins with telling us that there is a way in which we can live that will certainly not bring us God's Eden blessing. And here we find the first shaping that we could choose. But I think shaping is really the wrong word. It's better put decreation. It descends us into chaos and disorder. Remember that what we're reading this morning, it's poetry. And so the author uses imagery to help us understand his point, that those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, those who stand in the way of sinners, those who sit in the seat of scoffers, they will not receive God's blessing. So you see the verbs there, walk, stand, and sit. That, those are easy terms for us to latch onto and, and visualize what is being expressed here in the psalm. And some see a progression in the verbs and what they're associated with. There's an idea of you're walking, you're standing in a place, and then you take your seat, you're firmly in it. And there's progression of how deep you're going into that. And there is some truth to that. But the overall point here that the psalmist makes is that anyone who takes any of these actions, they're not going to receive God's blessing. Walking in the counsel of the wicked is to take their instruction and live by it. Standing in the way of sinners is to welcome them, to know that they're going to be coming that direction and you receive them and take their way of life as your own. And then sitting in the seat of scoffers is to ultimately reject the good wisdom of God and write it off as a jaded joke that's not even worth considering. And the story of Eden and the story of ancient Israel bears this out. Adam and Eve in that garden took the counsel of a serpent who scoffed at God's commands, and they rejected God's blessing. 
Israel, time and time again, desired what the nations around them had. They desired the gods that they worshipped. They rejected their covenant with God that was supposed to bring them blessing, that was supposed to make them a blessing. They stood in the way of sinners. They scoffed at the prophets as they spoke God's word. And ultimately, both the first humans and God's chosen people found that rejecting God's blessing is choosing exile. It's choosing chaos and disorder. It's choosing death. And the warning of this first verse here is as much for us this morning as it is for them. We live in a world that is saturated with those who are wicked, those who sin, those who scoff against God. Let's shoot straight though. Their way of life, it looks like the way to blessing. If I can just eat this fruit, if I can determine for myself what is good and evil on my own terms, then I can have what I want. I can be satisfied. Let's slow down and consider this. What does it mean to say sin? In the broadest sense, it's considering the incredible generosity and wisdom of God that we just read about in Genesis 1 and determining, I'm going to follow my own wisdom and my own desires instead. In other words, I consider God to be evil and what I want to do to be good. Sin twists and mangles the truth. And as I look in the rearview mirror of my life and my choices over the last seven days, I find far too many times that I've tried to find blessing in the counsel of the wicked, in the way of sinners, and in the scoffer's seat. The serpent is still deceiving us, church, still drawing us in to choose sin and death over blessing and life by rejecting the creator of blessing and life. And our own sinful natures entice us to pursue those sinful desires and to carry them out. We fill our minds and our hearts and our time more than we care to admit, chasing after our own kingdoms, chasing after what the world offers. And the psalmist is saying we cannot disconnect ourselves from the author of life and find God's blessing this way. And we're going to find out why in a few minutes. So, if that is not the way to blessing, then what is? Well, that brings us to point number two, the planting of blessing. Look again in verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Juxtaposed with associating with the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers, the blessed person, this is someone who delights in the law of the Lord, someone who is shaped and formed by it. Now, when you hear the word law in English, probably conveys a sense of court documents or maybe even shelves and volumes of books of law code and such, kind of stuff that really only lawyers would ever pick up and not really even desire to read as good reading. And unfortunately, many Christians, we see the law of the Lord as just that. The Bible is this moral rule book of do's and don'ts. Little wonder we don't read it. Who would ever delight in something like that? But as the video showed us, 
the Hebrew word here is Torah. It literally means instruction, teaching, wisdom. And that word is applied to the first five books of our Bible, but it also applies to all divine wisdom and instruction that comes from God. Here it is. We have it in his word. And again, consider the story of Eden. When you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you can't get a sense that this God is a God that withholds blessing from humans. No, he is overflowing with life and blessing. The garden was filled with such an abundance of food and beauty and meaningful, life-giving work. All creation was packed with the goodness and generosity of this God. And the blessing of all of that was to be enjoyed by humans who would listen to and follow Yahweh's wisdom and instruction. If they would do that, then it would lead to even more life. And as such, the law of the Lord, the teaching, the instruction of Yahweh, it isn't a drudgery of a code to follow. It is teaching in which we are to find our ultimate satisfaction and delight. You see, this life-giving God, He is not separate from the wisdom that He gives. To seek His wisdom and instruction is to seek Him and vice versa. They are inseparable. The delight in God's wisdom is tied to an intimate relationship of trust in, devotion to, and affection for Yahweh himself. And when we approach God's word in this way, our attitude toward his word will change. It will be transformed from that of being drudgery to what we see in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. It's no wonder then that the delight in God's word and the law of the Lord is so great that this blessed individual in verse 2 we find is someone who meditates or thinks about God's instruction and considers it all the time. And he uses it to shape and mold his relationships, his decisions, every aspect of his life. So that's what the Torah of Yahweh is like. Well, what is the one who delights in it? What is the one who thinks about it all the time? What is that person like? And here might be my favorite poetic line in all of the Psalms. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
in all that he does, he prospers. I'm going to ask that you indulge me for a few minutes because this is personal to me. Over the last few years, I've been fascinated by trees. I've seen in them and found a greater appreciation and affection for our Creator by looking at them, thinking about them, touching them, considering them. Allow me to share a few photos as I make the point. This is a, this is a visual Sunday morning uh, we're going to get into. So uh, looking at this first one, this is actually from New Life Camp. I have the privilege of being in a place that's surrounded by trees. I've read a handful of books about trees, learning more of God's incredible design and their creation. And to be in a place that I can constantly walk around and consider them is a real treat. Next one, I've taken hikes through Umstead Park. I think Umstead Park is one of the greatest treasures of living in Wake County. You can go in there and be surrounded by miles and miles of trees, surrounded by life. I literally cried in this field, overwhelmed at God's handiwork, tied together with his word that was speaking about trees, tied together with songs that speak of the trees in the field rejoicing and praising the Lord. Trees permeate our world. They're a source of life to us. They're beautiful. They're majestic. They're ancient. And even in the dead of winter near Niagara Falls, trees can get my attention. And yes, I did take photos of Niagara Falls, but that's not our subject this morning. Most trees were on this earth long before we were and most are going to be here long after we pass away. This one is in the Elizabethan Gardens in Manio, and it's over 400 years old. And this might come as a shocker to you, but that's older than Jonathan and Floyd put together. Happy birthday, brothers. And when it comes to the Bible, we'll look at this last photo. When it comes to the Bible, it should be noted that after God and humans the most frequently mentioned living beings in the scriptures are trees. The biblical authors are fascinated with them. And so this psalmist clearly has trees on the brain. So when he considers what the human who delights in Yahweh and his wisdom is like, there's no better candidate than the tree in a very particular kind of tree. See, a tree that is planted by a stream of water has a constant life source. Its roots go deep into the earth to soak up those nutrients. And for us to experience God's Eden blessing, we need to be planted by the streams of living water that we find in the instruction and word of Yahweh. We need to be constantly drinking from it. But this isn't just about surviving. No, this is about thriving. This tree produces fruit in its season, and its leaf is evergreen. It does not wither. It has abundant life. When we are constantly drinking from God's Word, by the way, it's not about it making us good people who do good things. The fruit a tree produces is of some benefit to the tree, but it is of incredible benefit and nutrition to others, including us as humans. We all have our favorite fruits that we enjoy eating that come from trees 
that are planted by life-giving resources. And God's Eden blessing, when we are planted in his word, it produces life and fruit in us and through us. The fruit of the Spirit grows in us, and that fruit becomes a blessing to others. They get to experience God's life and blessing through us. And the picture here at the end, the the author finishes with a comparison again. He says, in all that this person does, verse 3, he prospers. Now, this isn't a health and wealth kind of prosperity, though certainly if we follow Yahweh's wisdom and instruction in his word, generally we find more success. Things go better for us. But what's being talked about here is about fulfilling our Eden designed and commanded purpose, which is to image God to one another, to love God with all that we are, and to love others as ourselves. The fruit that is produced, it's others focused. But the author doesn't leave the wicked out of the plant comparison. Look at verse four. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. See, as we just finished with Ruth and so much talk about the harvest and the barley and the wheat that would have been harvested, what the culture would have done was cast the, the wheat and the barley up in the air, and the grain and all that was valuable would come down, but, but the husks and the straw, and the wind would grab it and just blow it away. It's worthless. It comes to nothing. That's what the wicked are like. They're blown away. They are no more. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Number three, the distinction of blessing. Look in verse five again. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see, Yahweh is a God of perfect justice, perfect equity, perfect righteousness. And not just in this psalm, but if you read, from, read through the entirety of the scriptures, this is one of the things that rises to the surface. He distinguishes quite clearly, those who will be blessed and those who will be destroyed. Notice the way the psalmist flips the script from from verse 1. Now, instead of those who stand in the way of sinners, it is the wicked and the sinners who will not stand in the final judgment or in the way of the righteous. Look at verse 6. Why? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knowing the way of the righteous, this isn't just that the Lord knows about it or that he sees it. No, this is a deep, intimate relationship, and it's a knowledge based on that because the righteous have been planted and tied together with Yahweh, seeking his wisdom and his instruction for their lives. The way of the wicked is something God also knows about, but it is far from his nature and from his character and his spirit. It's the way of death and destruction, completely opposed to what God is and who God is. And he will see to it 
that it does not last. So in a subtle way, the psalmist is echoing Moses' call to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20, which is part of the Torah. Here's what Moses says. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. The psalmist is telling us that those who choose to be planted in God's word, in God's wisdom, in his teaching, in his righteousness, they, they will stand in the final judgment. But those who choose sin and wickedness, those who reject God and his goodness and his generosity and his wisdom, they're going to perish. The stakes are extremely high that this psalm presents to us. They are high when it comes to God's blessing. But let's shoot straight again this morning. Which one of us here is truly righteous? Which one of us would ever claim to have perfectly planted ourselves in God's instruction and never failed to live it out? Which of us has chosen his way in every circumstance? Which of us have followed his greatest teaching and instruction to us to love him with everything we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves? None, myself included. Here's the harsh reality that we have to engage is that we all deserve to be cast out at the judgment. We deserve to be counted with the wicked to perish in our sins. We deserve no blessing. There's good news that this psalm and the entire collection of the psalms point us to that there is one who fulfilled this psalm perfectly in every way, and he did so on our behalf. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, Son of Man. When he was on this earth, he did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He didn't stand in the way of sinners. He didn't sit in the seat of scoffers. No, his delight was in the instruction of the Lord, his Father. Day and night, in every moment, he listened to, obeyed, and passionately pursued his Father's will. No one has ever been more worthy of honor, glory, and blessing than Jesus Christ. But as Isaiah says, he was numbered with the transgressors at his death. He took on our wickedness, our sin, our scoffing, all of our rejection of the Father. He bore our sins in his body on a tree. He was made a curse for us. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and that includes 
his beloved son. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead three days later, and it should always be a reminder to us why we are here on this particular day. We remember that God raised Jesus from the dead, and his resurrection is the start of new creation, new blessing. He is now that tree of life that bears fruit for us. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he offers to us the Eden blessing that will transform us from worthless chaff to fruitful trees, from dead sinners to living saints. And it's that fruit of salvation that comes by grace through faith alone. It's life eternal. It comes through his blood and his resurrection life. You and I can be counted among the righteous and receive God's blessing because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. All praise to him. Amen. And that leads us into a time of response. What are you pursuing this morning? What's shaping you? What are you allowing to form your life in such a way that you think is going to bring you the blessed life? And the first response for us this morning is a call to reject your sin and your own way of living and instead choose Jesus Christ. Don't reject him. He loves you. He died for you. He lives again. He is coming again and blessing and judgment are coming with him. This morning, Yahweh is calling us to salvation, to allegiance, to devotion, and delight in Jesus. He is the ultimate expression of God's generosity and blessing to anyone who will humble themselves and say, Jesus, I need you. I don't want to be the worthless chaff. I don't want to be in the way of the wicked. I don't want the judgment of death. I need you to save me from my sin and make me new. Make me alive in you. If that is you this morning, if you've never humbled yourself before Jesus with a prayer like that, that's the invitation. Turn to him this morning and find his blessing. The second response for us has everything to do with our relationship with Yahweh and his word. And it's highly practical. At the beginning of this year, January 1st exactly, Jonathan challenged us from Psalm 19 to treasure God's word and make it our delight. So consider this our six-month checkup. Are you even reading God's word? Much less thinking about it day and night? What emotion do you feel in connection with God's word? Is God's word an obligatory drudgery to you to open and read? Is it a discipline that you are slowly building and doing more and more? Is it the streams of living water that delight and satisfy you more than anything? When we come together with brothers and sisters in Christ, like we're doing this morning, or even in just casual conversation throughout the week, 
Do we delight in God's Word enough to share what we have been reading with one another? Is it bearing fruit in your life? Bearing fruit that is a blessing to the church and to those in our world who are lost in sin and darkness. Perhaps our responses would vary this morning. You might answer negatively to these, and maybe all of these questions make you feel like an absolute failure. I feel like a failure too. Aren't we glad the Lord deals with us not according to our sin, but according to His grace and His compassion and to the blood of Jesus shed for us? It's good news. But that said, His compassion and grace doesn't call us to inaction. Let's listen to the voice of the Spirit that simultaneously rebukes us, embraces us, and calls us to the good instruction and blessing of Yahweh that we can find by being planted in His Word. Maybe this morning you answer more positively. Maybe your reading and thinking about God's Word this year has been more consistent, more fruitful than it's ever been. And to that we say, praise the Lord and may God make it even more so. May the psalm before us this morning be an encouragement to stay planted in and delighting in the Word of the Lord. And so as we continue our study in the psalms, And as we learn through them what it means to worship and engage the Lord in this virtual temple of poetry and prayer and petition, may Psalm 1 remind us what comes when we seek the Lord when we're planted in His Word. Blessing. Let me pray that for us now. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the beauty of this psalm, the sobering thoughts of this psalm, but the enormous grace and abundance of life that can be found in it because it speaks of your good, holy instruction, wisdom, teaching, and life-giving spirit that we find in your word. Father, we thank you that your word in all its places point us, lead us to Jesus. Thank you that Jesus became the curse for us, that he might extend to us life and blessing forevermore. We praise you, Jesus, for your life, your death, and your resurrection that we might be transformed into trees of life. I pray, Father, for this church. I pray for me as part of this church. Show us that the way of the wicked, the way of our own sinful hearts doesn't last. It doesn't bring your blessing. Instead, igniting us again the fire and passion of delight in your word. May we cling to it. May we seek it. May we meditate and think about it day and night so that our lives 
won't just be good lives presented before you. No, we pray that our lives would become trees of life that bear fruit to the glory of Jesus and the nourishment of one another and those who desperately need him. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. We love you. Amen.